Please join me as we read uh, God's word here from chapter 44. Then he commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack, and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, Up, follow after the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks, and by this that, my he, that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. When he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. They said to him, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your, of our, your servants is found with it shall die, and we also will be my Lord's servants. He said, Let it be as you say. He who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack. And he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. When Jude and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. Joseph said to them, What deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also who's in, in whose hand the cup has been found. But he said, Far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. Then Judah went up to him and said, O oh my Lord, please let your servant speak a word into my Lord's ears, and not let your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. We said to my Lord, The boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, Unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, Go again, buy us a little food, we said, We cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with him. Then your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, Surely he has been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me, and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs in evil to Sheol. Now therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then... As his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die, and your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant our father with sorrow to Sheol. 
For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Lord, may you bless your word. Let's pray as we go to the, the sermon. Heavenly Father, I just want to pray now, God, that this would be just a, a powerful, profound passage in our lives as Paul comes to preach, that you would gift him through the Holy Spirit with the words and the meaning of the text that would imprint upon us what you would have in mind for us in understanding your providence, providence and also that would powerfully impact us in how we view our God, how we see our God, and we see our God at work, even when we're troubled, even in circumstances that seem beyond us, in the good, the bad, and the sometimes not understood. God, we would see you for who you are, our creator, our savior, our redeemer, and the one who guides us in all aspects of our life. We give praise to your name now as we hear your word. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. I have a number of regrets this morning. One of them is that I don't have time to give an overview of the text. If you're visiting with us or you just kind of have landed in the middle of uh, our series, we've been looking over a series of the life of the generations of Jacob, of which Joseph is one of those. And this is one of the most critical chapters in the whole of the account of the generations of Jacob. And I'd love to give you some context, but I'd encourage you, if you have the time and are willing to take it, to go back and start at verse or chapter 37 and catch up. There's a ton of emotion and tension in this passage. This is really the kind of high point, the critical uh, point, part of the story from which then the next week we'll see sort of the emotional dam bursts in Joseph's life and the reunion can begin. But as we come to it, particularly now, we find ourselves 20 years after a young boy was taken from his family by his brothers and sold as a slave and reportedly killed, and that was at least the report that was given to his father. The way that we have been viewing this whole text is in the, under the framework of providence. Providence is a critical word. It's an important word for us to understand. It's a theological word. I'll give you a short definition again of providence so you understand um, how it is that we are uh, framing our understanding of this story. But there's a New Testament verse which captures the doctrine of providence um, ever so succinctly. And it's one which we have also been layering over our understanding of this text as we've been going through it. And it is Romans 8:28. For we know that God causes all things, not some things, not the good things, not the bad things, but God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and for those who are called according to his purpose. A little bit broader definition of the doctrine of providence is from uh, one J.I. Packer, and he says it's the unceasing activity of the creator, God, the creator, whereby in overflowing bounty and goodwill, he upholds his creatures in ordered existence, guides and governs all events, circumstances, and free acts of angels and men, and directs everything to its appointed goal for his own glory. In other words, God is behind everything that takes place in everyone in every place of the world. It's one of the most fear-debilitating doctrines that you can ever concentrate on the Bible. If you can wrap your head around promise or providence, fear will flee from your life. 
As we come to this particular text, then, the pace of the narrative is really slowed down. In fact, from chapter 42 to uh, chapter 45, we, we, we're only dealing with a couple months as opposed to chapters that dealt with years at a time. And what we're going to realize this morning is that 20 years, 20 years of unresolved conflict in a family between a brothers will be reconciled on this one day. 20 years, all of that pent-up anger, all of that pent-up emotion, all of that is going to come to a head on this particular day. This is masterful storytelling. If you read a lot, you read a lot of novels, there are few that even come close to the way that this particular story is written for us. Pastor Barry last week mentioned for us that one of the skills of the author of this particular text for us, Moses, as he is inspired by God, is that we are um, not only reading the story, but we're aware of so much more that's going on in the story than those that are actually in the story. And we know who the leader of Egypt is that's being spoken of here. We know it's Joseph. We know that these are his brothers before him, and, but they don't have a clue that it's Joseph that they're dealing with this leader of Egypt. We know how uh, the week before, the night before, the 11 boys had been sat down at a table and they had been sat down in their birth order. We know how that took place. They have no clue how that took place. We know that a silver cup has been planted in the youngest boy's sack of grain, but nobody else knows about that except the steward. And so we are privy to this, and it, it, it just is working in our heads and in our hearts as we wrestle through this story as it's told to us. One of the amazing things that I want you to think about, and, and it, it, you know, Pastor Barry will say from time, if you get only one thing, get this. Well, I want you to get this, but a whole bunch of other things. But this is a, a really important thing to understand here. We are getting in this chapter, and I hope you listened as it was read, we are getting in this chapter some sense and some clue how the providence of God is worked out in our lives and in our world. How God guides and directs all things, both the free actions of men and angels, all to accomplish his will. You see, we can say that Joseph's privileged knowledge, the knowledge that he has as he's guiding the actions of his brothers, the story of their lives, his knowledge and his control over his brothers functions in a way without ever impinging on their free wills as a microcosm of God's omniscience and ultimate control over us all. In other words, we get a glimpse in this story of how God's providence works in our lives and in our world. Don't forget that. Work that one through this week. I want us to look sort of through the eyes of three brothers as we look at this text. The first is the brother Joseph, which nobody but Joseph knows who he is, in a sense. And it's another chance that he gives to his brother. It's a test that he sets up for them. Will they betray Benjamin as they betrayed him 22 years earlier? Or have they changed? Has God done a work in their life? As we were reading that text, if you're listening, what were you thinking when um, Doug just read the first part of the story, how Joseph sets his brothers up? He plants this, this silver cup in his sack. Were you angry? Were you, were you think, yeah, go get him, Joseph? You're the kind of people that love revenge. Um, but what were the thoughts and emotions that were going through your head? Were you thinking, Joseph, you're really a cruel guy. As I reflected on Joseph, I, I don't think that he was cruel or vindictive. He could have done so much worse 
to these uh, ten boys than what he has done to them this point. Rather, I think God is being, or Joseph is being used by God in a remarkable way to draw out of his brothers whether there has been a work of sanctification in them, whether God has worked in them forgiveness, whether God has worked in them change towards their father, change towards their youngest brother, Benjamin. And his plan came with enormous risk. What if it backfired? What if the brothers all of a sudden just cut Benjamin loose and said, See you later, Benjamin. You're off to Egypt. We're going back to dad, just as they had done 22 years earlier. What would Joseph do then with Benjamin? Would they go and try and fight? Like, there was all sorts of risks that were behind this plan of Joseph to plant this silver cup in Benjamin's sack. This was a final test of his brother's integrity. And then what about the brothers? What, what's going on in their heads and their hearts? Is, is anything happening inside of them? Are they any different today than they were 22 years earlier? And I think, why Benjamin? Why did he pick on Benjamin, this innocent young boy? He had done nothing wrong, and he was now going to be filled with the same fear, the same anxiousness, the same anxiety that Joseph had 22 years earlier. Joseph was trying to find out had his brothers wrestled through their father's favoritism. His father hadn't changed, but had his brothers changed in their response to their father's favoritism? Because now he favored Benjamin with a peculiar love. See, this is all a plan. It's a test that Joseph is setting up to see what has happened in the hearts of his brothers. And so he lays this plan out to his steward. And by the way, do you ever think what the steward was thinking here? He had no clue, but he's saying, is my master nuts? Like he's getting me to put silver in, and he's getting me to put the cup, and he's got this plan, and they must want to run after him. And you think, what is he thinking in his head as he's going about all his master's bidding? So he says, take this cup, plant it in my youngest brother's sack. Something fascinating to me, between chapters 42 and 45, the word silver is used 20 times. Do you know that Joseph was sold for 20 pieces of silver? It's no accident. It's just one of the ways in which the story masterfully is woven to draw out all kinds of connections and implications. And so here the, the boys are set off and you think, well, why didn't they check their bags before they went? Well, the night before it had been a wonderful night. They had, they had come back to Egypt and it had been a night of partying and they had been drinking. They had been making merry with the leader of Egypt. Why would they think anything untoward would happen? In the morning, they just stuck their sacks on their uh, donkeys and off they went. And so Joseph wanted to make sure before they hit the first rest stop, before they had the first opportunity to take the sacks off and give their donkeys some of the wheat that was in them, that his steward got there with the plan that he had set up for them. And he would accuse them of ingratitude and of theft. And then the boys would make this incredibly rash vow. Okay, whoever sacked the silver cup is so convinced were they of their innocence. Whoever's sacked this silver cup is, kill them, and we'll all be slaves in Egypt. There's so much tension here. You know, the, the, the steward plays his part perfectly. He could, he could fill any role in Hollywood. You know, rather than catching up with the boys and immediately going with Benjamin, I don't know if Joseph told him to do this or he did it himself, but he started with the oldest one first. And he pulled the sacks off of the oldest guy's donkey and he opened them up. Oh, there's just silver here. 
And he's working his way down the line. And I, I wonder what they were thinking when he got to maybe the sixth brother. You know, were they getting kind of arrogant and cocky and thinking, see, we told you so. You know, and they're getting all puffed up inside. And this guy is making his way closer and closer as they work their way down this list of lines. I wonder if, as they were going through this process, the boys went back to a day probably some 37 years earlier when a same, similar situation had happened. Do you remember that story? When Jacob flees from Laban, and as he's fleeing from Laban, his wife, Rachel, steals the household idols. And she takes the household idols and she sticks them in her saddlebags. And nobody knows. Maybe, you know, I, I suspect that maybe Joseph might have known you, some of the little boys in her tent, and thinking, Mom, what are you doing? Why are you stealing them? And then all of a sudden, Laban's men come flashing after them. They stop Jacob and they said, what are you doing? We know you're going back to your father, but why are you stealing the household idols? And Jacob, in his arrogance, says, we didn't steal your idols. And by the way, whoever's sack you find the idols in, you can kill them. Can you imagine the tension that must have been there? as the sacks were being unloaded by Laban until he came to Rachel's, and she was at that time of the month, and she said to her father, excuse me, but I can't get down, and so he passed her over. There's going to be no providential overlooking this time. In this instance, the outcome and the deception are reversed. And now it's Benjamin, the beloved son, whose life hangs in the balance. And we're not surprised by the outcome of the search because we know the story. And, and so I, I want you to stop for a moment. And what are you thinking at this point as they're getting to Benjamin? You know, sometimes you're watching a movie and you start talking out loud. No, don't do that. No, don't open that sack. Oh, I hope he trips and knocks his head off. So, or knocks his head off. Knocks himself out so that, so that he, he can't get to that bag and everyone's happy and everyone's free. And, and no, don't open that sack. feeling angry? You're feeling frustrated? You can't get in there and do anything? Is this sometimes how we reflect on the providence of God in our lives? The circumstances that unfold before us, we don't understand them. They don't make sense. They make us angry. They make us sad. They make us happy. They make us anxious. This is such an instructive truth. God knows exactly, exactly what he's doing in your life to the second. There's nothing that is taking place in your life that he is not aware of. Oh, that we might learn to be more trustful, more, more resting, more hopeful, more reliant, more God. I don't understand this, but rather than railing at him and getting angry at him and saying, Stop, God! We allow him to work out his providence in our life. I trust you, Lord. I put my hope in you, even though these circumstances are anything but what I hope for. See, there's a test that's going on here as we come back to the story. What will the brothers do? This is the test that Joseph is setting up. Will they remain loyal to Benjamin even when he looks guilty of theft? Or will they abandon him to Egypt as they had Joseph so many years earlier and go back to their father? Do they even care what the impact of the loss of Benjamin will have on their father? They certainly didn't care about the loss of Joseph to their father. They let him anguish in his grief for so many years. 
So verse 13 is a critical point of tension, and at this point, the boys pass the test. You say, well, how do you know? Well, it says in verse 13 that they tore their clothes. Just a sign of grief, a sign of horror, a sign of sadness. They tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. And I was thinking, what was Joseph going through? I'm sure he was pacing in, in his, in his um, home, in his palace in Egypt, as his steward has gone off and he's pacing. He's the Lord, what are they going to do? How are they going to react? What are they going to do? Are they going to cut Benjamin loose? What's going to happen? And what would have happened in his heart when the sort of the knock on the door came and he said, enter? And there were 11 boys and the steward. Don't you think for a moment his heart just skipped a beat? He says, wow, they've changed. They're not the same boys they were 22 years earlier. But he probes just a little bit farther. He says, didn't you know that a man like me could uncover truth by divination? Of course we know that's not the case. Of course we know Joseph is using this as a ruse. Of course we know that Joseph himself understood that only God knows the future and only God can reveal those kind of things. But God is the one that's able to expose their hearts. God is the one who knows the secrets of their hearts. There's nothing that is escaped from the eyes of God. And at such a moment like this, the boys are experiencing something that is both terrifying and freeing. Because they recognize the guilt of their sin 22 years earlier. Something they had kept suppressed, something they had put a callus over, something they had ignored, is all of a sudden now exposed. It's like God had awakened their conscience in that moment. And Judah says, we're not guilty of, of stealing because we didn't steal anything. But God has opened that wound of what we did 22 years earlier. Do you know that God knows everything in your heart? The Lord searches all of our hearts. He understands every plan and thought. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. You see, God used the circumstances of the first trip and now the silver cup to awaken their consciences. And Judah stands exposed, as I said, not before Joseph, but before God. He says, God has exposed your servant's iniquity. In other words, God has exposed the fact of what we had done to Joseph 20-some years earlier, the way that we had decided that we could thwart the will of God that was expressed in the dreams that Joseph had, the way that we could say to God, no way, God, you're not going to do what you say you're going to do. The conscience is an amazing gift. Complicated, to be sure. But it's a human faculty that judges our actions and our thoughts by the light of the highest standards we perceive, and it holds us accountable to those standards. An awakened conscience is a gift from God. One day I might take three or four weeks to go through the conscience in the Bible. The, the Bible talks about a good conscience, an evil conscience, a weak conscience, a strong conscience, a clear conscience, a defiled conscience, a seared conscience, a witnessing conscience. Do you know that one of the biggest attacks of this world today in the last 60, 70 years has been on the conscience? The world is trying to undermine the conscience which speaks to us about what is right and what is wrong. 
It's given us ways to suppress us. It's given us ways to ignore it. It's given us ways to redefine it. It's helping us to think that we can say what is good is evil and what is evil is good. There is an onslaught by the world to undermine the conscience that God has given to every one of us. J.I. Packer says an educated, sensitive conscience is God's monitor. Just an educate. You know that you can educate your conscience? You can train it, you can teach it, you can refine it, you can hone it. A sensitive conscience, you know that you can make your conscience more sensitive. That consciences can become like a callus on the finger. That if you sin long enough, if you ignore it long enough, a callus grows over your conscience. And sometimes just as, I used to stick pins through my, my calluses when I was a construction worker. I just love that. But, but after a while, if you peel off the callus, it's really tender, isn't it? And even the slightest prick or touch on that soft spot will hurt. Well, so you can help your conscience become more sensitive. So an educated, sensitive conscience is God's monitor. It alerts us to the moral quality of what we do or plan to do. Forbids lawlessness and irresponsibility. Makes us, listen to this, it makes us feel guilt, shame, and fear. This is what the world is trying to undermine in society. It is trying to erase guilt so that we don't feel any guilt for any of our actions. It's trying to do away with shame so that when we legitimately sin and we feel shame, it's trying to take that away so that we can sin willingly without any shame. And it's trying to take away the fear of consequences by getting rid of sin. And so... It gets rid of guilt, fear, and shame, and future retribution that tells us we deserve when we have allowed ourselves to defy its restraints. And I wish I had a thought of this when we were dealing with Satan's strategies in our life. Packer goes on to say, Satan's strategy is to corrupt, desensitize, and if possible, kill our consciences. The relativism, moralism, materialism, narcissism, secularism, and hedonism of today's Western world help him mightily toward his goal. His task is made yet simpler by the way in which the world's moral weaknesses have been taken into the contemporary church. This is a side note. I think as parents, one of the most important things that you can do, your first goal is to lead your child to Christ. Because when your child responds to Christ, they are a different being. And so your first task is to lead your child to the cross and to Christ. But I think the close second to that, the second task is to teach your child about his conscience or her conscience. To help her develop it, to help him understand what it is, to help him heed it, to help him hone it, for you to train it, for you to teach them what a conscience is so that as they grow up and as they go out into the world, they are equipped with God's monitor to guide and direct them when nobody else is around to guide and direct them. Lead your child to Christ. Teach them about the benefit of a biblical conscience. Back to verse 16. Final words of Joseph. I swear that I will not do this, that is, keep you all prisoners, punish the innocent with the guilty. Rather, the man in whom possession the cup was found will be my slave. The rest of you can go in peace. That is the final point of the test. Will they leave Benjamin and go in peace? Will they 
revert to their old ways or have they never changed and will they leave him to languish in Egypt while they go back in freedom to their father? The end of the test is one more opportunity for their brothers to betray an innocent man. What will they do? And if we just stop there, what will they do? Have they learned anything in 22 years? What has God done in their life? Has, has the providence of God been working and shaping and, and, and awakening their conscience? Have they changed at all? And the answer to that is yes. Because they stay with Benjamin. And then why did it take so long? Why did it take 22 years for them to realize the guilt of their sin? I don't understand the providence of God. I don't understand the nature of sin. I know it's wretched. I know it's evil. I don't understand why some people wrestle for year after year after year with a situation. I don't understand why something can be suppressed for a while and in the mercy of God, he awakens in us through providence some thing that we've done and he puts his finger upon it and we feel the weight of guilt. For some reason, it was over the period of 22 years, though, that God worked in the lives of these boys. The providence of God is beautiful. Not only was it working in Jacob's life to change him, not only was it working in Joseph's life, not only was it working in uh, Judah's life, it was working in the other nine boys as well. And so we have the plan of Joseph. And thank the Lord, his brothers passed the test. The second is his brother's plea. This is Judah. Verses 18 to 34 are one of the, it is the longest speech in all of Genesis. And it's one of the most beautiful speeches in all of the Bible. It is um, a lesson in the art of persuasion. It is incredibly powerful as Judah now, not knowing who this is that he's speaking to, as he makes his case for why Joseph, who he doesn't know is Joseph, for why this leader cannot do this. Why he has to let Benjamin go back to his father. And what unfolds is this incredible reality that Judah is a different man. The last time he spoke in, in Joseph's presence, he says, What profit is there if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come on, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And now he's pleading with this leader who turns out to be his brother. Release Benjamin. Because if you don't, it will kill our father. And we love our father. You see, his entire plea is motivated now by the deepest empathy for his father. A real understanding of what it means for an old man's life to be bound up in the life of his youngest son. And I, I wonder, could it be that the loss of Judah's own two sons by his interaction with Tamar and by other things, that over time God had helped him understand why it is we live the way we do, why it is our parents are the way we are. One of the beautiful things about parenting, sometimes the, the, you know, the, the younger years and the early teens and even in the early tw 20s, there is tension between kids and their parents. There's a, there's a sort of a, I don't know, cockiness. There's a, a lack of an awareness of what the parents do. And, 
And then you start getting in the 30s and the 40s and you start getting Father's Day cards and Mother's Day cards and you start having conversations and all of a sudden, you know, there's, Dad, I, I never knew the sacrifices you made. Mom, I never knew the way that what this, what I did here might have caused you so much pain. And I, I wonder if now there is this realization as Judah is now in his 40s, he's lived some life, he's had some kids, he's lost some kids, and all of a sudden there's this, oh, I, I get my dad. I understand why he so loves Benjamin and Joseph. I understand his peculiar love for Rachel. I don't understand it all, but he can have it. I know he loves me. He doesn't love me the same way, but he can have that kind of love. And so he goes through a history with Joseph, the leader. You said this, and we did this, and we told you the truth. It's, it's an amazing expose of truthfulness. There's not been a single lie, not been a single deception, not been a single misplaced word as he exposes the fact that we told you everything you asked us. The word father is such a key word in all of this. It's used 14 times in Judah's plea. He's, he's trying to bring this leader, Joseph, to the realization along the way that, listen, you will be complicit in my father's death if you don't send Benjamin home. It's such a beautiful, powerful plea. And Judah now, as he continues, I think he exposes something that Joseph never knew. I don't think Joseph ever knew that his father thought he was dead. You know, some people say, well, why didn't Joseph go back? Well, there's a lot of reasons, but one of them, I, I thought, I think maybe some, he didn't think his father knew he did. But all of a sudden, Judah says to him, this is the words of the father. You know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, as I said. Surely he has been torn to pieces. That just must have stuck Joseph like a knife. He didn't know his father thought he was eaten by animals. He didn't even know that his father thought he was dead you imagine the, just the anguish that he must have felt there? What has my dad been thinking for 20 years? He's been thinking, I've been dead. I was mauled by a bear or by a lion. And his father had kept the image in his mind probably every day throughout the day, this image of this blood-soaked, torn, colored robe and the anguish of his loss in his heart. And how Judah says, if Benjamin dies, it will surely break his heart. And what a transformation. See, see, this is the beauty of sanctification. This is the beauty of God. He doesn't leave us where we are. He works with us. He molds us. He shapes us. His, his providence, you know, we, we, we have the title, behind a, behind a Frowning Providence. Sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it's difficult. But behind a frowning providence is a smiling face. As God is bringing beauty from ashes in our lives. The brothers are now truthful. Joseph, Joseph or Judah is now so aware of how hurt and how devastating such a blow would be to his father. And he's really, in a way, a hero of the story as he's come to understand that love is sometimes irrational, that love is sometimes unpredictable, that love is sometimes elective. And he's okay with that because he knows he's still loved. The transformation in the hearts and lives of the ten boys 
is as miraculous as the rise to power of Joseph. Do you know there are more words given to the transformation in the lives of the boys than there are to the rise to power of Joseph? And yet what do we always think about? Joseph, look at the amazing rise in his life. But we need to think about the incredible work that God did in the lives of those boys. I end with this. The third brother speaks, our elder brother, Christ. There's something just so beautiful about Judah's final words. And my heart went immediately to Christ when I heard these words. Verse 33, Now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy, and let the boy go back to his brothers. Do you know this is the first place in all of Scripture of human substitution? And I think it opens the door for us to look down the road thousands of years when Christ will say to God, let me stand in place of Paul. Let the boy go home. Come back to that in just a sec. I want us to just think about this awakened conscience for a moment. When we are guilty of sins before God, I am so glad that God doesn't just leave us in that sinful state, but he awakens our conscience. And the question I, I want us all to wrestle through a little bit today and through this week is maybe what is the providence of God doing in your life right now? Through the circumstances that you're walking through, through the things that he's bringing across your path, is there something that he's awakening in you? Is there something that he's just putting his finger on? Is, he, is there something that, that all of a sudden all these things have happened and, and you go back to something that you did and you've never confessed it, you've never dealt with it, and God is saying, deal with it. For some here today, God has awakened your conscience and you've ignored it. You've rejected it. It's a terrifying thing to sear the conscience to build a callus over an awakened conscience and then fall into the hands of a living God. I lost a friend this week. And I think he is terrified today as he has fallen into the hands of the living God. Some of you know the awakening work of God in your hearts as he's working out your sanctification. But you know, it's possible to be a Christian and to go on sinning and to justify it and even to deal with it theologically and suppress the conscience. I've heard this. I, I wish I had a thousand dollars for every time I've heard this. I'm justified. My sins past, present, and future are dealt with by Christ. Therefore, it doesn't matter how I live. Oh, can you continue in sin that grace may increase? May it never be. And so we sometimes use theology to sear our conscience. David had the gift of Nathan. You are that man. The people of Jerusalem had the word of Peter when they 
were struck to the core. They were cut to the quick. What must we do to be saved? Repent of your sins. Don't ignore the providential work of God if he's awakened your conscience. God is real. And that reality changes everything because he is working in our lives. He is guiding and directing our lives. And it's not just about us, by the way. It's about this world that he's guiding according to this incredible plan that he has. But let the work of God, the providential work of God, bring forth incredible fruit of sanctification. We come back to Christ, our substitute. If you don't know Christ today, he will stand in your place. All you have to do is look to Jesus. Look to Jesus and say, Jesus, take my place. It reminds me of that Carrie Underwood song, Jesus, take the wheel. I don't know why that pops in my mind, but Jesus, take my place. God's done it all. He says, he made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, that we might be the righteousness of God in him. Let God take your place and bear your punishment and your slavery through Jesus Christ and hear him say, go home in peace. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your word. Speak to the heart of your people today through your spirit, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.